Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Revealing the truth behind the games we play. Coming up in this episode. The only situation in which he can continue to compete and have a career is to dope along with them. If you're clever about it, the chances of being caught are so low. Doping is a symptom of the system. It's not the problem of the actual athlete. Between 30 and 50 odd percent of athletes will confess to have doped in the last year. Only 1% get caught. Goldman's Dilemma, or the Goldman Dilemma, is a question that was posed to elite athletes by physician, osteopath, and publicist Robert Goldman, asking whether they would take a drug that would guarantee them overwhelming success in sport but cause them to die after five years. One of the interesting topics around drugs in sport. Welcome to the Science of Sport with myself, Mike Finch, and Professor Ross Tucker. And today we're talking about drugs in sport. I mean, the reason why we're bringing up the Goldman dilemma in our intro to the story is because, in to some extent, we I think most people would expect us, Ross, to kind of say, well, drugs are bad, drug cheats are bad. But in some ways, we are not sympathizing, but maybe we're hoping that this podcast will lead people to understand better why athletes do take drugs. I'm I'm sympathetic. Um, I'd say empathetic, but I'm not good enough to be faced with this dilemma because I've never been in a situation where someone comes to me and says, this career that you've dedicated the last six, seven years of your life to, you can continue with it if you take the following substances, as opposed to where I am, which is just an outside observer. So when an elite athlete gets faced with this situation, dope or retire, I can understand why they give in to the pressure mm. given the balance of risk and reward because the rewards are enormous and the risks are so low because as we will discover over the next just over an hour, the likelihood of being caught seems to me to be low enough to rationalize <laughs> that I should therefore take the drug. Now, I wouldn't take the drug if it was going to kill me in the in the Goldman's dilemma and in fact for the sake of transparency that goldman's dilemma from the 1980s has been challenged and even disproven recently they've done subsequent follow-ups with maybe a little bit better study design where they found that the percentage of athletes who would say yes is considerably lower but the point remains that if you offer a rational person a scenario where all his competitors are doping yeah the only situation in which he can continue to compete and have a career is to dope along with them and the risks of being caught are low, well, then why would you be surprised that many of them do it? What's interesting about that uh, study was it happened in the late uh, sort of mid-80s to early 1990s. And uh, one of the theories behind the reason why it was so high in those days is because drugs in sport was less high profile than it is now. Potentially now people know about the risks. There's, there's a lot of negative publicity around taking drugs, obviously. Back then it was kind of slightly more acceptable that you needed to take drugs to be competitive in the sport and therefore if that was your only way of making an income or being successful in your life then take the drug because and I know this is a very real factor because I was uh, very good friends with a very top 
triathlete here in South Africa many years ago. And um, and I said to him, leading up to the Olympics in Sydney in 2000, where I said to him, if you were able to get a drug that was literally, I didn't even know about Goldman's Dilemma until a few days ago, but I asked him this question, exactly the same question, saying, if you had a drug that was undetectable and you could win the gold medal at the Olympics in Sydney in the, in the first triathlon, would you take it? And he said, without a doubt. And I was shocked at that response, but now you begin to understand the the, the drama and the the controversy and almost the, the the decisions that most top athletes have to make when they consider that potentially everybody they're competing against is doping to some extent. I remember in I've I've lost track of time. It was probably in about two thousand five. There was a guy from the Scientific American called Michael Shermer, who used to write a column called The Skeptic, and he was also a keen cyclist. Mm. And he applied economic game theory to doping. And his argument was that you'd be rational to dope and irrational not to dope. Yeah. Because the balance, and again, we're going to repeat this and revisit this so often. Yeah. The balance between risk and reward is totally lopsided when it comes to doping. Because you're, if you're clever about it, the chances of being caught are so low. Yeah. The punishment is not nearly stringent enough. Even when you are caught, you can escape it if you can throw enough legal and scientific counter argument <laughs> at it and if you dope and succeed the risks are, uh, the rewards are so high yeah. plus as we just said everyone else is doing it too so if you didn't dope you'd be guaranteed to lose if you do dope you're not guaranteed to win but at least you have a fighting chance and so the this, the net result of all this is his argument was that of course you'd dope yeah. so when you then consider anti-doping anti-doping has to do two things it has to increase the probability that you'll be caught and it has to punish you more harshly when you are caught yeah and those two imperatives are what drives and undermines doping because at the moment there's neither the way nor the will to necessarily do those two things one of the interesting uh, interviews i saw a few days ago watching an interview done by lance armstrong 10 years after he was um last one his tour de france um, and obviously seven years since he's it went on Oprah Winfrey, basically telling everybody he'd been taking drugs. And one of the things that he said, they asked him, would you do it again? And he said, in the same situation as I was back then, absolutely I would. Because, of course. And he's probably the most high-profile person in modern times to kind of explain it. And I think a lot of people, and I think what's interesting about Lance Armstrong is that there are two sides to the fence when it comes to Lance Armstrong. A lot of people really do sympathize with him because they know that he was competing in an age where pretty much everybody was competing against. And this isn't just hypotheses, this is fact. Many of the athletes and their cyclists he was competing against have subsequently been bust for, for doping um, around his time. So he was just doing it better than everybody else and potentially he was just the best at doing that. Yeah, you'd be hard-pressed to find a clean cyclist from that generation. <laughs> um, the cynic would argue that you'd be hard-pressed to find a clean cyclist or athlete today. And I, f I find it difficult to sympathize with the attitude and the way that he did it, Armstrong specifically. Yeah. Um, he was aggressive. He, because he was aggressive, he yeah. was a bully, he was a sociopath. The few people who ever dared to challenge him, he came down on them like a ton of bricks. And, and I think he harmed a lot of people away from sport, which is maybe a little bit different to, say, a, a Tyler Hamilton or a Floyd Landis and so on. So I don't want people to get the wrong idea here. We're not backing the doper. No. We condemn doping um, and we want it eradicated, but doping is a symptom of the system. It's not the yeah. problem of the actual athlete who's who's driving this uh, malicious behavior and so forth. So that's, yeah, so so we, we 
doping is an ever-present shadow on sport. It's it's impossible to get away with it. And as soon as you turn the light on, the shadow appears. Yeah. Um, and we've committed in this podcast that we're going to talk about sports and sports events as often as we can, the science of sport. We don't want to have to always come back and spend 20 minutes explaining why the thing you <laughs> saw on the weekend is probably tainted by doping. It's real. It's a problem. It's a fact. We acknowledge it. And kind of the purpose of this podcast is to not get it out the way and pretend it doesn't exist, but to acknowledge it up front so that we can get on with the other stuff also. So let's uh, have a look at the history of um, doping in sports. And we talk about doping in sport as something that's happened in the last 50 years, but it hasn't. Um, I was looking at some stuff uh, online uh, in the build-up to the podcast talking about how Greek athletes in the 700s were taking fig juice and what they saw as doping because they used to eat a lot of meat, which back then Greeks didn't. So that was seen as doping. Um, in the late 19th century, we saw athletes taking cocoa leaves and adding um, alcohol to that. So doping has been part of sport and competitive sports pretty much since competitive sports became became a thing. Since humans were humans. Since we threw spears. Since humans were humans, right? Yeah. And cheating was always a thing. And doping is one way to cheat. That's all it is. So yeah. when you look at cycling before doping, cyclists would take the train from one place from point A to point B because it was easier than cycling there. Yeah, um, great stories. Those. <laughs> That's been stages with four hundred kilometers long. So it was, yeah, and you'd start before the sun came up, and yeah. you'd finish after the sun came no down. No wonder they were doping. And so you cheated yeah. because it made your life a little bit easier. And so anti-doping as a thing dates back to the nineteen sixties because in the nineteen and. One of the funny things on this, Mike, was when I was reading some stuff in advance of this podcast, I discovered that there's a lot of urban legend stories around doping, and I might be about to propagate one of those. So I'm, I'm <laughs> quoting from a paper by Arne Lundqvist on the history of anti-doping. It was published in a, in a book in 2017. So if I'm wrong, it's because he's wrong. That's fine. We'll quote him. So this is the, <laughs> this is the scientist's uh, safety net is I quote the source so that the source is blamed, not me. Um, so the Rome Olympic Games were the first ones televised live. And in the men's 100-kilometer uh, team time trial, a Danish cyclist called Knud Jensen collapsed and died. So now this is happening. Everyone's seeing it live on television. It's shocking and it demands action. And so in response to that, anti-doping as a thing is created and a, a medical commission is formed to investigate. But as you said, as far back as 2700 BC, so now we're talking <laughs> a long way back. What were, the, what were the Chinese taking back then that we you well, mentioned this before our podcast? They right. were taking substance that's still banned on the list. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to destroy the word. It's called Ma Huang and it was an extract from the ephedra plant, which they'd obviously discovered was a herb. And if you had a little bit of this, maybe you chewed it, you got some instant energy. And so they'd unwittingly discovered stimulants. Yeah. And so that that was then isolated in 1924, the stimulating substance, and identified as ephedrine, which yeah. today is on the banned substance list. Yeah. Um, so humans have always sought ways to make life more comfortable and to perform better. And when that same desire was applied to sport, it creates doping. And so, six, then, so 68, they start going, okay, we need to do something. Right. Then, so the, then, then what happened? So anti-doping is created in 61 with every intention of testing in 64, but they couldn't get it over the line. So <laughs> that alone should tell you. Excuse the pun. Yeah. So <laughs> wh why, why would it take three years to not succeed at getting the first testing done in 64? Is because right from the beginning, there was a general lack of appetite to 
address this problem. They either didn't know how to because it was yeah. so new or they didn't really want to because they knew what they'd find. Well, they so didn't really want to because the people who were running the sport were in charge of trying to catch the dopers. So that's where the conflict lies to some extent and um, probably still does. The conflict persists to this day. So there was, there was, and it's been documented, there was a general lack of commitment and a resistance to fight doping mm -hmm. in large part because the very people in 1961 who sat on the IOC's medical committee, the IAAF's medical committee, were also likely involved in doping athletes as part of those state-sponsored doping systems of East Germany. Yeah. So you're asking, and the same thing is true now in 2019 as it was in the 1960s, you're asking the dopers to police themselves. Yeah. Of course that's not going to work. So so this people always talk about conflicts of interest today. Um, Richard Pound was the first president of WADA and he said publicly that there's a general lack of will or an appetite to fight doping. Yeah. That has been the case since day zero, literally since yeah. day zero. So it takes them a while. In 1967, they finally agree on what's prohibited and what's not. In 1968, they do the first testing and the first casualty of anti-doping is a Swedish pentathlete who gets done for alcohol because yeah. he has a beer before the competition. He said he had two beers. Did he, oh, was it two? I think I, he said he had two. Some, yes, that's right. It says he has some beer. <laughs> uh, and the team was stripped of its bronze medal. That yeah. was in 1968. By 1972, they're testing 2,000 samples at the Munich Olympics, and they're catching a couple of gold medalists, a swimmer from the USA. And that's anti-doping's first success stories or failures, as it were, whichever perspective you wish to adopt. Then we move on to the 80s, and I think things got a bit sort of slightly more high profile. I mean, let's just take a small step back. And probably before that, one of the most high profile um, cases in endurance sport was Tommy Simpson, who died on the yeah. Von Two, and um, he was a big English cycling hero. And when they discovered what was wrong with him, he was basically full of amphetamines and, and alcohol. And what had happened in the process of, of that is that people had discovered that athlete, that cyclists in particular were using these drugs um, throughout the peloton. So he was, in that time, a very high-profile case because of his hero status within, within British cycling. Yeah, and there was the famous, probably urban legend line, put me back on my bike, which yeah. was allegedly the last thing that he ever said before he lost consciousness and would and would then die. So Mon Von Two is a famous setting. It's an iconic climb. It was an extremely hot day. He was an extremely famous cyclist. And he was from, and, and this has been widely covered in even in the academic literature, because he was from England, it received higher focus than, mm. than other cyclists who had also died in the 1960s on hot days. Mm. Now, there's some dispute in the interest of full disclosure around whether his death was the result of drugs or not, because it's possible that it was just a, a heat stroke related death. Mm. But he was uh, full of amphetamines. As many cyclists were in the 60s. And so yeah. that was the drug that was used because, so we'll talk about doping physiology in a moment, yeah. but amphetamines are stimulants. Yeah. So it's like when you wake up in the morning, our listeners, and you have a cup of coffee because unless you do, you're basically catatonic. Yeah. You're drinking caffeine as a stimulant. Now multiply that by a thousand. That's the amphetamine effect. Okay. So amphetamines are central nervous system stimulants that basically eliminate or remove fatigue. They make you feel, in the words of one athlete I saw, invincible, superpowered. They take away the normal inhibition of exercise. So... There are some studies looking at milder stimulants 
where cyclists are able to get their body temperatures higher than normal. Now, what normally happens is that your body's got these built-in regulatory mechanisms. And when your body temperature starts to get towards the upper limits of what's safe, your body says, thanks, that's it, you're done. Yeah. And you stop, you and fatigue. You stop. When you take amphetamines, you go through the ceiling and yeah. you can lift your body temperature higher than that. So that's a bio-plausible theory for Tom Simpson. It's the same theory that was applied in 1960 when the Danish cyclist Knud Jensen died. He was, as I said, this the, the stimulant, pardon the pun, for anti-doping. Yeah. Uh, so Simpson and Jensen, high-profile incidents linked, albeit without evidence, to stimulants, and that gave momentum to anti-doping. So let's uh, fast forward slightly into the 1980s when things started getting a little bit more serious in terms of doping. We saw in 1972 at the at the Olympic Games there was a, a real effort to do it. In the Pan American Games in 1983, um, they decided to do again testing outside of the major competitions this was a smaller event and then suddenly there was this um a whole bunch of athletes then pulled out and suddenly all the american athletes went home and there was obviously a big panic because the athletes realized that they were going to be uh, tested and they weren't expecting it but before that out of competition testing was already starting to happen as well so momentum was building in the war against drugs yeah and the biggest barrier at this stage was was a philosophical one which persists to this day and it mm. was why should athletes not be allowed to take something that the public at large are? Right now, amphetamines, of course, no one's allowed to take. They're banned yeah. substances. They're illegal substances. Similarly, testosterone should only be taken with prescriptions and many of the other drugs. But the, the, the point was that a student cramming for exams could take milder forms of stimulants, but an athlete couldn't. So there was this philosophical debate. And education around what anti-doping actually meant was probably the big thing at that stage yeah they then started to realize because the initial list of banned substances was limited to stimulants primarily yeah substances that would affect your performance acutely in competition the problem was that they had recognized that anabolic steroids were now being used as well and that anabolic steroids were affecting your performance out of competition because you could take that drug in March, April, May, yeah. and then compete in the Olympics in July, August, and you would still get the benefits long after the drug was gone. Well, mainly because you can train harder right. and so, recover quicker. So physiology of doping is that, the, and, and th this is true even now, is the main benefit of doping is not acute. It's chronic built up over time because it enables better training and better recovery. And so the solution. So in, other words, to most, that, in other words, most just to explain that a bit better, to explain acute versus chronic. In other words, acute means you don't take it in competition. You're taking it into the build-up competition, and you're taking it consistently in the build-up rather than taking it on the day to enhance performance on the day. So that's that's what chronic benefits would yeah. imply is that they're yeah. accumulated over time, and so rather than needing that drug at that moment of competition, you actually get the benefit of the drug months before. Yeah. And that benefit persists after the drug is gone. Which so, means it's difficult to test athletes in competition because the drug isn't there anymore. Which means you'd be an idiot if you fail a test in competition. Yes. Because it means you've, you've either messed up or you've gotten incredibly unlucky. Because yes. you, and, and, and the level of sophistication is they know that if I stop taking the drug today, the 6th of June, then by the 13th of June, no drug laboratory in the world will find that drug in my urine. 
Yeah. They know this. Yeah. They know what the window of detection is. And so you can plan to avoid being tested until you're clean. In other yeah. words, you never take a test. You know you won't pass, right? You know yeah. that old adage from school. Get a sick note if you have to, but do not take the test if you're yeah. going to fail it. So, so out of competition testing was the solution to the problem. The problem was that doping was giving athletes benefits long after the drug was gone. Mm. Out of competition testing was meant to clamp down on that. The big problem with out of competition testing was ethical. Can you legitimately go to athletes at their place of work? Because remember, they weren't many of these athletes weren't professional yet in the 70s. Yeah. And ask them to give you a urine sample when they weren't at a sports event. Yeah. And it turned out that in Scandinavia they they recognized that as long as the athlete was part of an organization that had signed up to the rules, it would be fine. Yeah. And so they started in Scandinavia in the late 1970s. It then took a long time for the rest of the world to catch up. Again, why? Because the appetite wasn't there. There was a way to do it. Yeah. The will is the thing that was lacking. And it was it was Ben Johnson in 1988 that was the global high profile disaster that sport needed yeah in order to push it over the edge to say right as from now we're testing athletes out of competition a lot more aggressively and that's why mm. if you look at especially women's world records they all date to the 1980s you yeah. look at the the records the top 50 performances in the 100 the 200 the 400 the 800 you'll just see 70s 80s yeah that's because testosterone use and not just testosterone, the synthetic versions that the Eastern Bloc countries manufactured, yeah. and maybe the West also, by the way. Yeah. Designer so steroids, powerful. weren't they? Designer steroids, yeah. turinobol, stenozolol, which is yeah. the one that Ben Johnson allegedly had in his blood, yeah. in his urine. So just to, just to wind back a little bit with Ben Johnson, he, he was on the cover, a very famous cover of a Sports Illustrated magazine, just said busted with on the cover eyes. with these yellow eyes. And, yeah. and yeah, so it was one of those iconic... Uh, magazine covers that sort of highlighted the, the the problem within sport, but how was how was he caught? And this is a guy that was obviously competing at the highest level, and he'd been doing steroids. He clearly looked like he'd been doing steroids for some time, and and he was bust. Was was he bust just because he was negligent and not checking when he when he was when the stuff got out of his system? Was he bust before? Um, that's the, that's the interesting thing about uh, um, Ben Johnson is that he he became the poster boy of what was all bad about sprinters. And, that, and it took years and years for sprinters to kind of get any, I think even till today, a lot of people think that sprinters, um, particularly 100-meter sprinters, are doping because of the size and the bulk of them. And because history has shown most of them to be doping. There was a yeah. – Ben Johnson's winning time in that race in Seoul was 9.79, right? So there's a documentary called 9.79, yeah. and its tagline was cross the line, pay the price. Yeah. And highly worth watching because – of the eight men in that final, only one has escaped some level of scrutiny, either a positive test, a known covered-up positive test, or high degree of suspicion around doping and being covered yeah. up. So the conspiracies around that particular race, those 9.79 seconds are deep. Yeah, And it, it was, because it's the 100-meter race and because it was Carl Lewis versus Ben Johnson, that rivalry had been simmering from 1987 <laughs> at the World Championships the year before, it was such a pinnacle moment for sport mm. and for doping that it really gave a lot of momentum to anti-doping. Whether it helped solve the problem, I don't know, but it, 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 spawned, a, it, sp it spawned a good deal of knowledge and, and action around yeah. anti-doping. And why was Ben Johnson caught? 
probably because he was intended to go down. Um, yeah. I don't want to throw fuel on the conspiracy fire, but but it seems to me that he could have been caught before that and many others could have been caught too. So, so why was he caught at that stage? Why did he make such a basic mistake? Yeah. I don't know. But one interesting thing about that is that the... The IOC sends a lawyer in to see Ben Johnson and he says, Ben, are you on anything? And Ben Johnson looks this lawyer in the eye and he says, no, I've no idea how the drugs entered my system. And that lawyer was Richard Pound, yeah. who would later on become the first president of WADA. And his exposure to Ben Johnson, he said in a later interview, he says, I was absolutely convinced that he was, that he was clean yeah, because he's told me he was. Yeah. And it was the naivety of the time. That That's how I felt just, about Lance Armstrong for many years, to be honest. Yeah, I think many yeah. people, every single listener who's wise to doping can probably tell you their Ben Johnson, Lance Armstrong moment. Yeah. Um, and so that because was, that it, was I, a pivotal one. I think to one. some extent we want to believe, uh, and the Lance Armstrong story I think is a, a good example of that, is that when you see a performance or a story like Lance Armstrong's story, he comes back from cancer, He physiologically he looks like he could be the story. He was a bigger cyclist before he had cancer. He loses lots of weight. He then goes and becomes a, a top climber and wins the Tour de France seven times. But it's a good story. So for uh, for anybody who loves cycling or loves sport, you want to believe that story is true. Um, and I think the same applies to the sprinters. And when you see these amazing athletes at the pinnacle of their game, it's wonderful to think that they have got there naturally and what is possible naturally. It's the same thing when I look at somebody like, um, um, like Bolt. Uh, yeah. He's a magnificent specimen of a human being to watch run um, and I hope that we never find out that he's done anything wrong that he is all natural talent and I personally believe that he is um, but it's, it's wonderful to watch somebody compete and race and look so magnificent in the 100 meters to believe they're not doing that naturally is disappointing if you're a sports lover. It's what we want from sports yeah and so it's very easy for people to fill our desire with that narrative yeah in hindsight do, do you feel foolish at thinking that about Armstrong that it could just be that because remember 98 was Festina yes and the two, the riders were sitting down at the start line in protest because the police there were as many policemen in that race as there were cyclists they were raiding the hotel rooms they were catching guys they were taking them away tearful Richard Veronk in a press conference and so forth yeah and then one year later this miracle story of a transformation of an American cyclist comes along and everybody suspends what had happened the year before to say this is cool. Yeah. It's actually Of course. And then in hindsight you think, <laughs> actually, how did how could we not how could we not question that more? It's because they fill that that hole so quickly. And I see that happening now. Yeah. I see I see the same things. The oh I lost the weight. Oh, come on. <laughs> he just started training <laughs> but it, harder. It is for, the, for for me as a, no. a lover of sport, watching that it, it makes total sense. He lost the weight. And that's why he I'm, was a good rider before he got sick. He lost the weight. He's still a good rider. Oh, I'll tell you what, he's more plausible than some current ones. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Not mentioning names and, right and, now. and runners, actually. Because yeah. cycling, cycling gets picked on a lot. Yeah. Because, you know, we spoke about doping is the shadow, and the moment you turn the lights on, the shadow appears. Yeah. Cycling's the one sport where the lights have been shone on it the yeah. most. Like if you shone the same light on football, soccer for our American mm. listeners, or... Yeah. NFL. Even, even tennis. I mean, NFL, they don't even pretend to be legitimate. They, yeah. they catch guys and they give them a four-week ban and then that same season, it's the players, the MVP in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Like they, yeah. they don't even pretend that anti-doping and doping are a problem yeah. in that sport. It's all entertainment. WWE wrestling. 
<laughs> without a script and then some people would even question that but that's exactly yeah, what sure. it is i mean baseball they announced at one point that they were going to be doing testing and they still caught guys yeah they, they literally said on this day we will come and we will test your players mm. and there were still players who failed the drugs test they suppose there's a sense of arrogance as well they, they just don't care because yeah. they understand that the market doesn't yeah so and that's an important concept is the market drives the appetite for anti-doping so Again, 1960, cyclist collapses live at the Olympics. 1967, yeah. dramatic death. 1988, dramatic exposure of Ben Johnson doping. Yeah. And the moral response to that is what triggers the anti-doping. So it's reactive, yeah. but it's driven by the public. It's driven by sponsors. Yeah. Cycling's, I was going to say turning point, but I don't think it has reached a turning point. But one of the, one of the big things in cycling that helped was when the German... And I think Swiss might have been Dutch. I apologize if I get this wrong. But the newspapers refused to cover the sport for a season or two. Yeah, I remember that. Because they said it's so tainted by doping. I think this was in 2006, six seven. Yeah. That until you clean up your act, we will yeah. only cover the negative side of the sport. Yeah. Now all of a sudden the sponsors are on side and they're saying, geez, we better sort something out here. That's the incentive that's required. Yes. As long as there's no moral outrage, there's no incentive to change. And so that's why... That's why doping exposure should be celebrated. Mm. When Kenyan athletes who win Olympic gold medals in the marathon, Sumgong, a few weeks ago, the athlete who came third was done yeah. for doping. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, it's also bad <laughs> yeah. because it, it reveals the problem. Yeah. But I'd rather have that than yeah. look the other way, which yeah. is unfortunately what parochial media want you to do, you know? Yeah. Um, the Lance Armstrong story was created by the U.S. media narrative. Yeah. And, and the English-speaking world lapped it up, and they're mm -hmm. doing the same things now with many other athletes. Yeah. Let's just uh, go back to our sort of uh, little discussion on history. So once we had the Ben Johnson case in 1988, a lot of – it was kind of a, a dead period between the late 1980s till, till the establishment of WADA in late 1999. So – Kind of what happened there, and was there was there a will there to to kind of control drug use, particularly in endurance sports? And um, it was kind of that that once the Ben Johnson thing had kind of died, there wasn't much happening between the establishment of there and and Wada in, in 1999. The whole anti-doping thing, anti-doping and doping are locked in a dance. It's a you do something, I react. You know, yeah. it's reaction, reaction. So when they introduced out of competition testing, what happened is athletes got slower and weaker. Yeah. And worse, you know, the Olympic motto was swifter, higher, stronger. Not in those <laughs> orders. No, I'm, I'm Sidious Altius, higher, stronger. Sidious Altius Fortius, and forgive my Latin at this yeah. time of the day. Um, Anti-doping achieved the opposite. It yeah. got lower, slower, weaker. Um, and that's why, as I was saying before, the women's world records have stagnated. It's basically yeah. a fossil record of anabolic steroids in the 1970s and 80s because the moment out of competition testing was introduced, it worked to some extent. Yeah. It didn't eradicate doping, but it helped. And so all through the 1980s, dopers had to be a little bit more cautious, yeah. a little bit more prudent. They could still dope, but they had to be careful about it. It's the same thing as a speed limit. Mm. They lowered it from 100 miles an hour to 80 miles an hour. People still sped, but maybe less often and less severely. And that's what was happening. What was also happening, though, was clever pharmacists, coaches, doctors, athletes were finding more intelligent ways to dope. And that's where doping becomes more sophisticated and the types of substances that are used 
are becoming more advanced, potentially undetectable. And so every year layers of complexity are being added onto doping and therefore because it's a dance, anti-doping has to become more complex to keep up with it. Yeah. So by the time we get to the late 1980s, we have a new drug on the market and it's EPO. Yeah. Because up to that point it was you used stimulants or steroids and now all of us, or sorry, or you blood doped. You took your own blood out you stored it in a freezer for a few weeks and then you put it back in for a sudden boost around the time of competition. That's obviously not desirable because you've got to harm yourself performance-wise in order to benefit later. EPO comes along, happy days, because yeah. now I can get the benefit and his only benefit. And so that, that then triggers the next gen of doping in a different category of sport. Because then you have these German swimmers who eventually uh, come out and say they've been doping for two decades. You have the, the Chinese swimmers, the Chinese athletes that come out and destroy records and then subsequently a lot of them get banned. So all that stuff happens early, in the Which, early 1990s. And the Chinese in particular highlights the big problem of the time yeah. was unequal anti-doping. Yeah. Uh, because at that stage, individual federations were allowed to be independent. In other words, you could be a swimmer compared to a cyclist, compared to a runner, compared to, say, a weightlifter. And for the same drug, you'd get different bands, different likelihood of getting caught because athletics was testing, weightlifting maybe wasn't. Yeah. Or you could be Chinese compared to, for argument's sake, Spanish, and you would be exposed to completely different levels of testing. And the Chinese yeah. were basically hidden. It was a free-for-all. Untested. Yeah. They'd show up, they'd dominate, they'd run the top five times in the history over one weekend in the 3,000, the 5,000, the 10, yeah. whatever it was, yeah. and they disappear. Yeah. And then people would say, how are you doing this? Turtle blood. Yeah. Pro and prove us wrong. And yeah. you see, you couldn't, because if you couldn't catch them. Mm. And the best analogy... The turtles I were to, dying all over the world as a result. Yeah, I mean, there was a turtle shortage <laughs> in the mid-1990s in China. Um, and yeah, that, that was turtle blood and 300 k's a week. Yeah, I remember the massive mileage they used to do. I mean, I was just reading here. Claim to do. In the, in the 1994 FINA World Swimming Championships, China won 12 of the 16 gold medals. And uh, subsequently, after all, 11 athletes were eventually tested positive for steroids, which meant only one athlete actually remained from China as a, as a winner of that competition. So 12 of 16 medals, and of those, 11 were eventually bust for steroids. So when you see stuff like it's that, you start I mean, it's saying terrifying, really, isn't it? I mean, to think that there was absolutely widespread and almost blatant to, to such an extent, I, mean, I remember watching the World Athletics Championships in Stuttgart uh, back in 1994 and looking at the domination of the Chinese athletes and thinking, most of us know this is probably impossible, but maybe they're just doing some this weird turtle Again, blood stuff. It's because you want to <laughs> believe. Maybe they've found the elixir. It's because people people's default is I want to believe. Yeah. So all you have to do is give them even a 2% plausible scenario to explain what they're seeing and they'll go, hmm, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Turtle blood. Yeah. Like it's just then Lance it's the same story run on repeat over and over. And that's why th there's an element of pattern recognition here, right? Mm. Because if you go back to the 1960s in retrospect you can explain what you saw from the Eastern Bloc countries as being systematic doping. You can explain what you see in the records in the 1980s as being the consequence of doping with yeah. anabolic steroids. Yeah. You can explain the performances of the 90s as a consequence of EPO when it entered the sports world. You can explain the Chinese performances as doping. So whenever you see these patterns, not every single athlete every single time, yeah. but these patterns always point to a consistent underlying behavior, and that behavior is doping. So yeah. 
that's why when it's now 2019 and I see the same dominance from one country emerging out of nowhere and they want to tell me it's sophisticated sports management, come on. Like, <laughs> you, it might be. The it cynic might flag be. goes up. It does for me. Yeah. So it might be that. And maybe your, maybe your pseudo-management speak has helped you win a couple of medals and your professionalism and so forth. But I've seen this movie before and I know what the characters were doing in the last time I saw it. So you're going to have to do a lot more than convince me of marginal gains and, and uh, black box thinking, Syed, to, to make me think that this is now a different movie. There's a wonderful story. Uh, I mean, it's almost it's almost hilarious, and it's in the in its execution. But there was a an Irish swimmer, Michelle Smith, who was married to her husband Eric Debrain, who was a former discus thrower, and she was caught uh, pouring whiskey into her yeah. urine sample to try and mask the, the the drug. So, I mean, it's the Irish whiskey into urine is one way of solving it. But it shows you that it was the, this, the blatant nature of it. And this was in 1998, before, just before the establishment of WADA. It was so blatant. It was so obvious retrospectively. At the time, it probably wasn't as obvious as we as we can talk about it. No, if it was obvious, yeah. they would have solved it. Yeah, and that's the thing is like it's it's not sophisticated, right? I mean, yeah. whiskey into urine, whiskey, whiskey and urine of ninety eight. That's a waste of whiskey. Is the depends what it was. <laughs> if it's a single mod, it's just travesty. <laughs> she was Irish. So there's plenty where that came from. Um, that, that, that's, that story there is analogous to the Russian story of the 2014 Sochi Olympics where they put coffee granules in the urine to make it look like the one they'd swapped it out for. So yes. what the Russians did was they'd collected clean urine samples from all their athletes in anticipation of the Sochi Olympics. If that athlete was then tested at the Games and they knew that that athlete's urine would come back positive, they passed it through a hole in the wall and they just swapped it out. Literally through a hole in the wall. Literally a hole in yeah. the wall. and. So then they'd swap it out. A bloke would scoot off on a little motorbike across the city. They'd go go to where they'd stored it up. They'd open these supposedly tamper-proof urine bottles. They'd swap the clean urine for the dirty one. They'd add a bit of coffee in it to make it look the same color and send mm. it back. Now, mm. the world's most sophisticated anti-doping test cannot beat that system. Yeah. You can literally beat it with a hole in the wall. Yeah. Same as you could beat it with whiskey in the urine. Okay, she got caught. So and she got caught. Because it was um, lethal amounts of whiskey, so she would have been dead from alcohol poisoning. Yeah. That's how she got caught. Someone's flags went up. <laughs> uh, other athletes I remember, I can't remember the name of the guy. It was a hammer thrower, a condom full of clean urine inserted into his anus mm. so that when he went to give his urine sample, he could just give that one instead of his own. Yeah. That, so these are not sophisticated PhD-level strategies to evade doping, mm. but that's the kind of thing that's done. I mean... You're at home, you know that you've taken EPO, you know that if you give a sample at that moment, you'll fail the test and someone knocks on your door. What do you do? You literally don't answer the door. That was how it was done. Yeah. Tyler Hamilton in his book would say that they would hide behind the couch until the tester went away <laughs> because they know that they've got three strikes yeah. before they get done. So therefore, you just avoid until you know that you're not quote unquote glowing any longer. And that's why, that's why people react the way they do to missed tests. Because a missed test is a flag for a pattern that people understand has meaning. Yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, fast forward to November the 10th, 1999, the establishment of the World Anti-Doping Agency. And this is where it kind of shifts slightly because this becomes independent of sporting federations and therefore suddenly the onus is on and the potentially the, 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 um, the, word, the, the decision to do it is, is independent of the federations, which is a good thing. Yeah, a milestone and, and a good thing. 
Yeah. It, it was. And water, I mean, I've been critical of water, sometimes unfairly and sometimes belligerently, which I, which I sometimes regret. I remember being at a conference once in Monaco and the medical director of water is a guy called Alan Vernack, a really pleasant guy, and I get on well with him. He came to me and he said he takes issue with some of the things that I've written. And we had a reasonable conversation over a, a couple of beers in Monaco about it. And I think I think for the most part, water is well-intentioned and was well-constructed, but it's been undermined by political conflicts of interest in the same way that the IOC's medical commission and the IAAF's medical commission in the 60s was undermined. Because WADA was formed by mandate of the IOC, basically telling governments, you've got to sort this out. Because mm. as we've said, the, the, the problem was, and I'll, I'm reading again from that Lundqvist paper, was that you had these major inconsistencies between uh, different sports and different federations. So the penalties varied so much between them. So you could have an athlete from one in the same country getting different penalties depending on sport. And you could have athletes from the same sport getting different penalties depending on their nationality. So that's not fair. Yeah. Um, so WADA was put together primarily to address some of the legal slash political issues facing anti-doping at that time. And it's centralized control. It was linked to a judicial system that runs through the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which we've discussed in a different context on this podcast before. And it was done, I think, with every good intention. The problem is, again, at the very top level, you've got politicians, which sounds the way I, as it leaves my word, it feels like a dirty word. It's not meant to be. But, but you've got decision makers who are conflicted and who have vested interests. And, and what's happened is that Wada's set of incentives has slowly become compromised over time to the point that now the major criticisms of WADA are political, as in Richard Pound again, who we've discussed in this podcast, has been quoted, and I'll read this quote to you. He he says here, Riddick, uh, let me just find exactly the quote for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm only looking for that. I'm just looking at some of the interesting things happening in 2002. And we're going to talk a little bit about what, how WADA was involved and what they do now. And as you said, mm -hmm. there is some controversy and some conflict of interest there. But certainly it's a move in the right direction where WADA yeah. is, and it still exists. And, of course, you've got a USADA that was established, the American Anti-Doping Agency, which was very involved, particularly in the Lance Armstrong case. Mm -hmm. um, so th there is there is a positive momentum at that point yes. towards so, doping control. Right, so that's a cool segue. Thanks for bailing me out. <laughs> uh, Come on, say, I've got like 10 tabs open here and I have to find which one I need to read from. So Pound says we're at a crucial juncture in the way we deal with doping in sport. This was in 2013. I would argue that this is as true today as it was then. We have good systems, but it's a matter of getting senior people to commit to them. Now, the good systems are WADA. So WADA's creation in 99 and the first WADA code in 2003 in Copenhagen comes into effect in 2004 are all part of these good systems. And there are good yeah. people. These scientists at WADA are good, well-intentioned, 
people with integrity, they are sincere, but it's the senior people. So Pound goes on, he says, in some instances, we're seeing a serious and determined bid by administrators not to rock the boat. There are administrators who decide they can't afford bad publicity and you see discovering drug cheats as bad, not good. Surely most rational people would agree that they're conflicted. Now, a few minutes ago, you spoke of how you watch 100 meter sprinting and you see Usain Bolt and you hope he never gets done for doping. If I'm the IAAF, I would never allow Usain Bolt to get caught for doping. Yeah. Because because he, he okay, now he's retired. Maybe it's a little bit different, but he was the guy holding the sport up. Yeah. He was worth an enormous amount of money to that sport. So, and you pick your sport, listeners. Well, a little bit like Lance Armstrong. Was he, was the he was the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. He was the same thing. Within each country, British cycling is that to the British community, yeah. to, to England sport. So, will, will those, you, you mentioned Michelle Smith. One of the most remarkable things is that Irish journalists took her down. <laughs> now, I don't know what it is about Kimmage and Walsh at the time, and there was another one, uh, Dunphy, I'm sorry if I've messed it up. They, they were the ones who, who pursued that story. Yeah. Now, mm. journalists don't go after their own because you are, to quote someone, spitting in the soup. Why would you, why would you do that? So what Pound is getting at here is, is the issue of conflict of interest. And that was the problem is you've now got these national anti-doping agencies that have to police themselves. And this conflict has led to the to the water being labeled as the public relations arm of the IOC because it receives its funding from them. It's directly conflicted. And you saw this play out when McLaren, Richard McLaren was the lawyer who was mandated to go in and investigate the Russian case. He and his investigator was a guy called Jack Robertson. Jack Robertson was interviewed by David Epstein. And if the listeners Google search for Epstein interview Robertson Wader, they'll find this interview where Robertson makes some unbelievable claims about how he felt as the lead investigator that he was not being supported to uncover the truth by the senior politicians within Wada. There were emails that were leaked at the time where Wada assured Russia that they would look after them and they don't want this to become a big deal. Now, that's not how you win the trust of the public. Yeah. Um, there's a perception that Wada is compromised at the highest political level and when it acts in a way that doesn't nip that in the bud, then that perception just exponentially grows. And that's the that's the problem now in 2019. It's not it's not the concept of an anti-doping agency. It's not even necessarily the tools because WADA have introduced codes that I think improve every time. Mm -hmm. They've introduced tools like the passport, which we can get onto, that have improved the way. Mm. The problem remains the will. Coming up. You can't afford false positives because the theory was that your blood would become so thick that your heart stopped pumping it. Between 30 and 50 odd percent of athletes will confess to have doped in the last year. Only 1% get caught. All right, so let's move on to this discussion around drugs. Let's just kind of, as almost an explainer section of this podcast, to talk about the kind of drugs that are out there. We, we talked a little bit about amphetamines. So let's start with amphetamines. That was the first kind of drug that was seen to be legitimately performance enhancing. What is it? What does it do? We have explained it a bit, but maybe just go through that again. Yeah, so amphetamines are caffeine on caffeine. I mean, like, so you, <laughs> you, you wake that, up. It's that triple shot. It's that triple shot 
injected multiplied by a factor of exponentially larger you know so uh, your your morning coffee to wake you up is is a stimulant caffeine is a stimulant caffeine used to be on the banned list in the same category as amphetamines it was then removed because it wasn't thought to be performance enhancing enough or harmful enough or both but amphetamines are central nervous system stimulants they were developed and used in World War II to help pilots stay awake. So you talk about performance enhancing. That's life or death yeah. performance enhancing. Justifiable uh, use. And yeah, I guess you could argue. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what you think of war. Um, <laughs> That's another podcast, right? <laughs> not for this. Uh, not for this. Not for us. Not Someone for us. else pick that up, please. Um so when their properties were recognized, let's take away fatigue. Let's give people access to energy that they wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah. Break through the the normal barrier that would limit performance. Of course, this was this was the most instant way to improve performance. And, and so, how would you? I mean, how would you take it? Uh, injection, pull, injection or pull? Yeah. yeah. Nightclubbers, ecstasy. Yeah. Was the same thing. And I remember reading, it might have been in Willy Foot's book, Breaking the Chain. Or it was in Kimmage's book about cyclists who would take these cocktails, which included, among other things, amphetamines. The one was called pot bulge, heroin, amphetamine, and cocaine. I mean, that's that's a big night out. You don't right? you don't sleep for a and few that, days. And that's that's what literally what they said. They yeah. would call they'd lie there still staring at the ceiling. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for sports performance, this is instant performance enhancement because. Yeah. Whatever's causing fatigue is suddenly three percent delayed, yeah. and you, you're going to be better off as a result. So those are those are banned. They're hardly ever you hardly ever get anyone caught for them unless an athlete nowadays takes a supplement which they yeah. think is legal, and it's either contaminated or contains a stimulant they weren't aware of. So methylhexanamine is a is a drug name that some might be familiar with if you're a doping nerd. Uh, that that one did a whole bunch of athletes recently, and well, I say a few years ago, because it was a contaminant in supplements. Yeah, um, and then you, then you get cases of basically inadvertent doping, which more often than not aren't met sympathetically because mm. of strict liability. You know, an athlete is responsible for what's in their body. Yeah, and if you take a supplement off the shelf and you are careless or aren't diligent enough to check what it contains, then that's too bad. So so anyway, so short answer, central nervous system, drugs, take away fatigue, hardly ever caught because they are of use in competition and hardly anyone fails in competition testing. Human growth hormone? That was the next big one. Yeah, more recent, obviously. That's So when you look at the WADA list as a prohibited list, which includes substances and methods, um, the 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 human growth hormone falls in the category of peptide hormones and growth factors and it is as far as doping goes a recovery drug so the the training an elite athlete does whether they're a weightlifter whose effort lasts 1.6 seconds yeah. or a tour de france cyclist whose effort lasts 3 weeks the imperative is recovery if you can recover 10% better than everyone else then you are performing better because it means that you can train hard four days a week instead of three. That's a massive difference over six months, right? So growth hormone was a recovery drug. And if you could recover better, as I said, you'd perform better. So it it was undetectable for a long time until urine tests for growth hormone were first introduced. So in other words, physiologically, it would repair muscle damage. Exactly. Okay. So in other words, your muscles would get stronger quicker. 
Yeah, not just muscle. We're talking okay. circulatory system, capillary growth. I mean, it literally is a growth factor. So it's, it triggers anabolic, which is building up processes in the body. Then the big ones, the big ones that are probably as prevalent, prevalent now as they ever have been, steroids. Yeah. Where do we sit with steroids? I mean, what is first of all, what does it do? Um, how does it, it's, it's kind of a, a drug that people take from endurance sports so, like cycling to weightlifting. So there's different kinds of steroids. There's, there's something called glucocorticoids and, and they're also steroid hormones. Cholesterol, for instance, is the is origin of these steroid hormones. But the one you're talking about now is the anabolic androgenic steroids. Now, listeners of this podcast would have discovered androgens and anabolic steroids in huge detail a few weeks ago because we discussed the Semenya case, yeah. which related to testosterone. So testosterone is the most famous of those. These are hormones that are anabolic. Again, they build the body up. Mm-hmm. They're androgenic, so they're male-making, um, which in the context of sport is relevant because it means increased muscle size and growth uh, and improved recovery. So again, an athlete taking steroid hormones or anabolic steroid hormones would be able to train harder and get better training results in terms of strength and power than someone who's not taking them. So these were the drugs of choice in particular for power athletes, sprint athletes, 100-meter guys, sprint cyclists, and so forth, Mm -hmm. but not limited to them because the, the recovery benefits of using a steroid like testosterone would still be beneficial for a Tour de France cyclist or a marathon runner. But it wouldn't, would it not bulk an endurance athlete up? It depends on the training you do while yeah. you're taking it because the, the training is the stimulus for performance, not the steroid. Like you and I could inject steroids into our body now and we'd see some benefit, but yeah. we'd have, have to, to get into the to gym. See the benefit. Yeah. And the, so the, the, the specificity of the training stimulus will drive the adaptation that the steroid, the, the, the drug induces. And is that why it's so widespread across so many different sports? Because it has a wide application no matter who you are. I mean, there was uh, there's baseball players that have uh, admitted to, mm. I think there was a story back in the States in the early 2000s where one of the major league baseball players said that he felt that 50% of major league baseball players were taking steroids. I'd so, be surprised if it was that low given their <laughs> testing policy. But yeah, yeah. it's that's, that's because, especially the hitters, um, Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, they yeah. were all caught up in that Balco scandal, which also ended up doing for Marion Jones and Tim Montgomery. Um, that was Bay Area Lab. That was in San Francisco. And they were using these designer steroids at that time. DHT was the abbreviation for the, for the one used. And they were just generating power as a consequence of doping plus training. And so now instead of hitting a ball, I'll say in feet, 420 feet, you could hit 460. So yeah. your home run percentages were going to go oh, up by 20%. Just looking it up now, Ken Kinemiti told Sports Illustrated in May 28, 2002, where he said that uh, he'd used steroids um, during his 1996 National League MVP season, and he estimated half the players in big leagues were also using steroids. So it was a it was a big thing. I mean, in baseball, and you don't think of baseball players as being athletes that would need steroids. Yeah, but again, it's, it's just about power. It's in the shoulders, it's in the hips and the rotation and yeah. the arms. Yeah. So any anything again, you're looking for five percent yeah. is the difference between caught in the outfield and home run. Yeah. So if that happens twenty times a year, then that's if a big you take, incentive. One of the interesting things around steroids is if you take steroids too much, is there a danger? There's been stories about steroid use causing heart attacks at an early age. 
What are the after effects of extended steroid use? Is there any science around that or any studies being done? So the first person who comes to mind is Heidi Kriegler. That was known as Hormone Heidi. So Heidi Kriegler was an East German shot put athlete who later in life becomes so masculinized that becomes Andreas Kriegler. And again, people feel free to Google Hormone Heidi or Heidi Kriegler, Andreas Kriegler, and you'll see photographs before and after. Mm. And there were reports of those East German athletes being doped systematically from a young age. I mean, they were, remember, they were identifying kids in their early teens as part of their talent ID system and then putting them on these quote-unquote vitamin S supplements, <laughs> which were effectively these anabolic steroid hormones and causing what have been alleged to be birth defects and problems later in life, kidney, liver, heart problems. Yeah, There, there are, as usual, um, and it's the same for EPO, there are probably doomsayer stories that have exaggerated the side effects a little bit. Um, Florence Griffith-Joyner died young. Everyone says, must be doping. Yeah, she was it, 40, wasn't it she? It could Something be like doping, yeah. 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 It could be, but it, it could also not be because people yeah. do die young. I mean, yeah. we, we, we all know someone who is definitely not a doper who's died in their yes. sleep and so forth. Yeah. So, so, there's, so no, there's no direct link between steroid use and early death or early problems? Not that I've seen, though. Yeah. I suspect yeah. that there is with the abuse of steroids. And yeah. this is an important point because when out-of-competition testing was introduced, and in fact, even before that, when testing for steroids was introduced, it would have constrained how much athletes could do. Yeah. So where before your threshold was X, it's now Y, which is lower than X. <clears throat> and that probably has safety implications. Yeah. So anti-doping might be protecting athletes from themselves, mm. um, w which is a benefit even when doping continues. So they might yeah. still be doping at a lower level and that's still a win for anti-doping. I remember seeing a documentary a few uh, weeks ago about uh, – bodybuilders and uh, when they took steroids there was obviously extensive uh, steroid use amongst bodybuilders it was unregulated for many many years and because they were taking the steroids they're pushing their bodies to such limits that many of these top bodybuilders when they get to the early 40s they can't walk anymore because their tendons and their bodies have just broken down yeah. from the amount of um, exercise they put and, and the kind of strain they put on their bodies so in that respect the steroid has pushed their bodies beyond its normal limitation and therefore it breaks down as they get older yeah, and there's acute there's acute problems also. Like you've everyone's heard of roid rage, where if you take testosterone, you become progressively more aggressive. Yeah, that's been linked to certain violent acts that have affected athletes in in some of these sports. So there's no doubt that the abuse of steroids and any drug would be bad yeah. in the same way that the abuse of painkillers is bad. I mean, yeah, just because you can buy it off the shelf in a pharmacy doesn't make it safe. So drug abuse is bad, but I think. It's, it was interesting, as I said, reading up ahead of this discussion, th there's a school of thought that says that the dangers of drugs have been wildly overstated to try and demonize them as part of the anti-doping war. And so there's this campaign of misinformation around how dangerous they actually are. And I suspect that if someone uses drugs very sensibly under medical guidance, the, the risks are probably quite low. For medical reasons. But that's... And for performance reasons in sport. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. But that wasn't being done in the 1970s yeah. and 80s, so then it probably was harmful. Yeah. There's no question that EPO use in the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s mm. as an unregulated doping practice was probably more harmful than it is now. Well, let's talk a little bit about how e dangerous Let's it talk was. about EPO. Um, EPO is one of the most interesting 
um, doping mechanisms that particularly used in endurance athletes, and it was obviously highlighted very much by cycling. What is EPO? What does it do to the body? Yeah, so EPO is listed in the water prohibited list in the same category as growth factors because it's a peptide hormone, like a protein hormone. Now, yeah. your body naturally produces EPO when it is stimulated by less oxygen to do so. So when you go to altitude, your body senses, hang on, there's less oxygen available. My response to that is I need more red blood cells and EPO is the messenger that makes the blood cells. Yeah. So literally EPO stands for erythropoietin and erythrocytes are red blood cells mm. and poietin means to produce, right? So yep. EPO acts in the bone marrow and it switches the factory on. Basically, it activates the workers right. to make blood cells. To make red blood cells. Now, for the endurance athlete, this is a massive benefit because red blood cells carry oxygen, and oxygen is one of the limiting slash regulatory factors that influences and limits exercise. So when a guy is climbing Alpe d'Huez or running a 201, 202 marathon or a 5,000-meter race, whatever it is, the ability of that person to get oxygen from the air into the lungs, into the blood, into the muscles is a crucial factor determining performance. And so if you can increase that capacity and the delivery of oxygen, then your performance goes up enormously. It's, it's red blood cells are taxis and oxygen are passen is, passenger, is the passenger, yeah. right? So using EPO, EPO was a drug that was initially developed to help treat people with renal failure. Uh, with anemia as a consequence because it was potentially life-saving to them. For athletes, it's potentially Olympic medal winning. Yeah. Um, and when it was introduced in the late 1980s, the speed of the peloton shot up Yeah. because the, the effect was enormous. And it's persisted ever since. And authorities initially had no test. Yeah. So the best they could do was Mainly to, because it was naturally occurring, you can't test for something that's already in the body. Unless what's injected is subtly different to what's naturally occurring, which yeah. it turns out it is, but it took a while for them to figure out how to tell the two apart. Yeah. And, so, and this is one of the big issues around doping is, you, you know, there's an adage around um, the, the legal system, criminal law, that it's better for 99 guilty people to go free than for one innocent person to go to jail. Yeah. That principle underpins anti-doping also because you, you can't afford false positives. For sure. Um, and so with EPO, they had to really refine the test in order to tell those two things apart. So for a long time, the only mechanism they had was to test what's called the hematocrit of the blood. Remember when they used to force people yep. to rest? So hematocrit is the percentage of your blood volume that's occupied by cells. And they, they set a cutoff at 50%. Yep. Now, as we're sitting here, we're probably 40, 42, maybe 44, yep. maybe some athletes are a little higher. Yeah. They said that if you're at 50%, you have to stand down for a mandatory rest period for your own safety. Yeah. That was... Your own safety meaning that your blood, blood is... In theory. <laughs> too thick? <laughs> I, think, I think what they meant to say there, what they were saying actually was you have to stand down because your medicate's so high, we think you're doping. But they, they couched it as a safety issue because yes. your blood was now carrying so much in the way of red blood cells. And, and this is where things get quite interesting and controversial because... It, it's what I would call like plausible biologically, let's call it bio-plausible, yeah. that as you add red blood cells to the blood, it gets thicker and thicker. So yeah. if you read up on this, you'll see various terms used, treacle, syrup, yeah. oil. The most famous one was blood as mud. Blood becomes mud. 
and it gets yeah. thicker and thicker and thicker. And that gets attributed or a number of sudden deaths in cyclists in the 80s and 90s get attributed to EPO use and abuse. Because yeah. the theory was that your blood would become so thick that your heart stopped pumping it. So That's, there were stories going around at that time, and I think some books have even recorded this, is that athletes would have heart rate monitors attached to themselves. So at night, if their heart rate dropped below a certain level, they would have to get up and either ride their bike on an indoor trainer or do some press-ups to try and get their heart rate up, and therefore they, they wouldn't die. So during the day they were racing, during at night they were riding to stay alive. Yeah, and that's, so a, that that's a quote from a book. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's Matt Rendell's book on Pantani. Yeah, but it's it's one it's one of the it's one of the cycling books exactly where they used to say that if if you were in a cycling hotel at two a.m. you would often hear the sound of a bicycle on the rollers in a hotel room. Mm. I, I mean, don't, it's a, and it's a horrific story. Think it, about it, it is, for you yeah. as an athlete yeah. having to do that, knowing no. that you have to be attached to a machine to keep you alive at night while you're competing in an event. Yeah, and at the peak of your physical prowess. Now, again. <laughs> In, in the interest of disclosure, that story has been challenged a lot as yeah. as what some people have called academic urban legend because even the deaths that have been attributed to EPO use, there were 18 from 1987 to 1992 or 1990 even, and, and they were largely thought to be the consequence of EPO abuse in Dutch and Belgian cyclists in particular. That's been widely challenged, and there are a couple of papers from an academic out of Spain in which he explains how most of those can't be EPO related because yeah. the person died before EPO was available. So they couldn't even be, it's impossible. Yeah. Or the athlete was not even in competing at the time or they'd retired six years before and so forth. So it, it, was, it was probably one of those things where the first one caused attention to be put on it. And then yeah. you started seeing more and more and more of them. And then you attribute a cause after the fact. And so I don't know that that is necessarily the case and I don't know about the story about the rollers whether it's one of those things that just gains a life of its own because it gets retold often enough but it's bio plausible <laughs> it's for it, use of your word yeah it's although subsequently some studies have come out now testing EPO where they measure blood pressure for instance during exercise and addressed and they found out that when people take EPO their blood pressure during exercise is higher but at rest it's no higher so yeah. if EPO were doing this to athletes you'd expect that it would be lower uh, higher at rest. On the other hand, EPO seems to have properties other than just oxygen carrying capacity. And so systematic reviews where they look at thousands of people who are using this as patients, and now we're talking about diabetic, yeah. kidney failure and so on, they've, they've shown that there is a higher risk of stroke and what's known as thrombolytic events when people are on EPO. They're not sure exactly why that is. So it's possible that some of those deaths are the consequence of EPO use. But it's also possible that some of them are just the normal sudden death that happens to human beings and they've been wrongly attributed to EPO. So no one knows that. And it's it's the same as your question about testosterone. How would you study that ethically? I mean, you can't put yeah. 6,000 people on EPO for six years and see how many die compared to 6,000 controls. Yeah. I mean, it's just... So, so the... The way we understand these risks is almost always hindsight, observational, and then it's confounded by so many different things. So there is no empirical evidence of that particular thing being true, but it certainly makes for a scary story. Still to come, between 30 and 50 odd percent of athletes will confess to have doped in the last year. Only 1% get caught. 
Right, so we've taken ourselves through the early sort of early history of doping and anti-doping, and we talked a little bit about the the drugs and the doping involved across the many different sports. Let's kind of turn our attention to where we are now. Uh, we've in the last uh, sort of 20, 15, 20 years, we've had the Lance Armstrong scandal, we've had Floyd Landis, we've had Tyler Hamilton coming out. Cycling's been exposed for what it is. There's been various cases in uh, in, in Major League Baseball, uh, baseball and NFL. Um, do you think? Where are we in terms of the, the catching the dopers? Um, where's the science? Um, and we can maybe look um, in, our, in a later discussion about where, where it could go. But where are mm. we now in terms of doping control? So I always frame this as the will and the way. I mean, I have already in this podcast. Let's, let's park the will to the end because I think that's where the big barrier still exists and that's what needs to change moving forward. Where we are with the way was the introduction of the biological passport, which was since the initial testing in the 1960s and the out-of-competition testing, this was the third watershed moment for anti-doping. The biopassport comes along to solve the problem of the time. So remember, the first problem is no testing at all. Let's yeah. test. The second problem is athletes get the benefit of drugs long after the drug is gone. So let's test out-of-competition. And the third thing is we can't always find the drug, but can we look for its effects? Yeah. And that's what the biological passport is trying to do. So just explain a little bit of how that works. So in other words, a, an athlete will get tested, all the numbers will come up, that's the hematocrit level, that's the hormone levels, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. And there has to be a consistency in the results on that passport for it to prove that there is no outside influence from drugs. Yeah, so a couple of analogies. When I was in, Wada kindly and miraculously invited me to a conference in Rome last year in October, and one of the guys from Wada gave what I thought was the best analogy is like, when you look at an athlete's career, you're looking at a tunnel that is completely dark. And at some point in that tunnel, you have to try and test that athlete. You're yeah. basically shining a light at a moment in time in that tunnel. And you're hoping that you shine it at the moment that he's doping. Yeah. And of course, the likelihood of that is astronomically low. That's why only 1% roughly of all tests done come back positive. Yeah. Even though in studies, between depending on which method you use, between 30 and 50 odd percent of athletes will confess to have doped in the last year, only 1% get caught. So, the ah, so let's, I mean, just to stop you there for a minute. Yeah. So, in terms of prevalence overall in sport, you're saying that that figure is on the low side, 30% yeah. at least, yeah. and yeah. 50%. So, if I'm looking at a cycling peloton, Based on those that research study, we can say that thirty percent of the peloton, at least, yeah, and is I, yeah. taking some, and I reckon higher at the front end than the back end. Um, okay. Now, where does that figure come from? Because this is quite interesting. If you think it's lower than thirty percent, you're effectively labeling athletes themselves as liars about doping, because that's the self-confessed figure. Yeah. Best case scenario. Now, what happens is WADA commissions a group of researchers to go and do a survey at the 2011 World Champs and the 2011 Pan-Arab Games. And they, they, they do what's a clever survey design. It's called a randomized response technique. I won't bore the listeners with what it means. But basically, you, you ask the questions in a way that gives the athlete maximum confidence that they can't be identified. So there's a random question followed by the doping question. Right. In theory, that should give me, as an athlete, some assurance that I'm not going to be caught yeah, as, as a confessional one day. Yes. And, and, and what they discover there is that at the World Champs, which was in South Korea that year, 
Uh, 44% of athletes will confess to having doped within so the last 12 gyms. months. Athletics, yeah, yeah IAAF. Yeah. At the Pan-Arab Games, that figures 57%. So that's that's your anchor point, 44% and 57%. Well, now, that's, a, that's a shockingly high number. Yeah, I'm very surprised. Basically one in two. Yeah. If you, if you want to be a little bit more cautious slash optimistic, what they did was they said, right, let's let's take away what they called fast responders. So like they think that's people who actually didn't care enough to answer this question diligently and honestly. Yeah. Then that figure comes down. You eliminate the the people you think are being a little bit reckless. Yeah. And that figure comes down to 30% at world champs. Yeah. So the lowest point that I would go, if anyone says what percentage of athletes are doping, is 30. Why? Yeah. Because they've told me that, right? So one in three. One in three. Now, yeah. there's a good chance if I was an athlete being the skeptical guy that I am, I still wouldn't answer that question honestly, even if you assured me that it was anonymous. Yeah. So more likely than not, that 30% is an underrepresentation. So it's probably higher. Yeah. Even than 30 or 45, if you want to go back to the, the start point. Yeah. So, so I think the prevalence is quite a lot higher. They've done similar mathematical evaluations of the passport. And I haven't explained the concept of the passport, I will in a moment, where they reckon it's between 14 and 40%. Yeah. So again, you're in that same ballpark. Yeah. Now, when the prevalence is that high and the percentage of success is between 1 and 1.5%, and, and that's going back 10 years now, then it tells you that anti-doping testing is relatively ineffective in comparison to doping practice, right? Right. And that's, again, you come back to that analogy. There's a tunnel of darkness and you're trying to shine a light at the very moment that the athlete is doping. It's very difficult. Yeah. What the biological passport was intended to do was to track that athlete as they moved through that tunnel. Yeah. And you no longer had to catch them with the drug in their body. You simply had to find the effects of the drug on the body. Now, yeah. the analogy there that I would use is like I'm sitting here across the table from you right now and you've got short hair. If I see you tomorrow and you've got long hair down to your shoulders, I'm calling you out for wearing a wig. Because it's not biologically possible for your hair to grow 20 centimeters overnight. Yeah, That's the principle that underpins the biological passport. So okay. what it's doing is it's saying, let's look at certain measures in your blood, your hemoglobin, your hematocrit. So hemoglobin is the compound that carries the oxygen on the red blood cell. Hematocrit, we've discussed, it's the percentage of red blood cells. And then another one called reticulocytes. These are immature young blood cells, red blood cells. It's not possible for a human being's blood values to fluctuate wildly from one week or one month to the next. There's a there's a biologically expected variation from one day Even one week to the next. Even for doing extreme sports. Yes, within reason. So does that make sense to you that you yeah. can set you can set an upper limit and a lower limit if you track an athlete over time for how much they should vary before it starts to look abnormal. Yeah. Now how tightly you can make that upper and lower limit is the key factor here because you don't want false positives. So in other words, if, if I measure your blood today and your hemoglobin is, let's say, 14.1 and next mm -hmm. month it's 14.3 and 14.1 again and so forth, we start to develop a pattern for you. Right. If that pattern suddenly varies and I measured you in, in August and you were at 15.3, it would be flagged up as a suspiciously large change, yeah. abnormally large. Now, the question is, when does it become abnormal? Yeah. And this is where scientists have developed these statistical models 
and it's, it's now called the adaptive model based on Bayesian statistics, where they are able to flag with a 99% probability whether something's abnormal or not. Mm -hmm. the, the problem with the biological passport is that it can, it, it's, it's variables, the hemoglobin, the red blood cells, the reticulocytes and so on. Those things can be affected by factors other than doping. Yeah. So an athlete goes to altitude, their body senses less oxygen, they make more red blood cells. So yep. their reticulocyte levels go up. Yes. Their hemoglobin levels go up over time. The hematocrit levels might come down. Right. So all of these factors are being affected by training, yep. by altitude, by race conditions and circumstances. Mm. Temperature potentially affects it acutely. So the dilemma for scientists is how do we have confidence that when we measure a change, we can say this change is doping as opposed to all the other things. And that's why the biological passport is necessarily conservative. It yeah. misses a lot of cases because we can, we can set those thresholds A and B, but too widely apart to catch dopers because we're too cautious about falsely catching an innocent person. Yeah. Make sense? And, and legally, I mean, is there anything that uh, that passport, if it shows this anomaly, can athletes then be banned based on that right, anomaly so, or so, they just stop from competing? No, it, it can and it has. And most recently, a couple of Kenyans, the athlete Eunice Kerwa, who I just mentioned, that was a biological passport case. There was a, okay. a very good half marathon run. In fact, I think the world record holder in the half marathon, Abraham, I forgot his name. You can look it up while I'm waffling. Uh, he got done just before the London Marathon on a passport type violation. So yeah. the, the passport can do two things. One is it it directly catches a doper, and the second one is it flags up a suspicious profile, which is then target tested, and that must be what happened in the case of Asbel Kiprop, who was the fifteen hundred meter champion at the two thousand eight Olympic Games. I think he was or twelve. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, mm, he yeah. his his profile was suspicious. They say okay, it's not. It's not so suspicious that we're confident legally to sanction you based on the passport only, but we are going to track you and target test you aggressively for the next few months. And sure enough, they then catch him with EPO. So, yeah. so, so it's a, it, it, it serves two purposes. And I think it has been effective in that regard. And it's yeah. certainly changed behavior because before athletes could use EPO, yeah. no problems. Yeah. Because as long as you're only they were, testing for EPO. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. as long as you're not glowing, yeah. in Hamilton's word, at the time of the test, you'd be fine. Uh, and you could blood dope. You could take your blood out and put it back in. Yeah. But like, so basic physiology lesson, hematology lesson, is if you take your blood out, your body knows that it's lost blood. Mm. And it says, oh, we better respond. How? We make new, new blood. So in the first few days after removing blood, your reticulocyte levels go up. Right, and your hemoglobin levels have come down because you've taken your markers. blood out. and so yeah. that's the marker. So yeah. when you see an athlete whose reticulocyte percentage is up and his hemoglobin's down, yeah, that's a flag for potential blood removal. Right, when he puts it back in, his hemoglobin goes up, and a couple of days later, his reticulocyte levels come down. Yeah. why? Because his body says, "Whoa, we've got so much yeah. now. We're going to shut the factory down for a bit." Yeah, yeah. EPO, reticulocytes go up. Why? Because that's literally EPO's job. Yeah, it stimulates blood cell formation. So, yeah. the problem is, you go to altitude, reticulocytes go up. You come down from altitude, reticulocytes go down. Yeah. So they they calculate something called an off score, which is an index of how much your blood cell production factory is operating. Mm. 
And that's one of the things that's tracked in this passport. So, and does the passport also um, you you can track steroid abuse, any kind a, of drug? Um, there's a passport. separate steroid passport which they they launched a few years back, and it's got problems because when we talk about the effectiveness of a test, we talk about its sensitivity, as in how well does it detect what it's looking for. Mm-hmm. So, in the biological passport for blood, uh, for blood doping and EPO. If you had 100 dopers, how many would it get? Yeah. Okay. Obviously, 100 would be great. 85, there's a study showing 82%. Yeah. But then we also talk about specificity, as in how many innocent people does it get by accident, false positives. And the problem with the steroid passport at the moment is that the false positive rate is very high. Okay. And so in order to avoid the legal implications of catching the wrong guy they've had to make the sensitivity really low so in other words they can't it's not effective at this point yeah Uh, it exists it just hasn't been refined to the extent that the bio the blood passport has now there are critics of the blood passport and i've certainly been one of them saying that it's not it's not sensitive enough and again it's frustrating to see these blood passport profiles and you know that you're looking at a doper but you can't quite get over the legal barrier because what has to happen is when that, so there's a system, there's a whole IT system built around this thing. It's quite advanced and sophisticated, very impressive actually. Yeah. When a sample gets flagged as being abnormal with a 99% probability, it gets sent to three independent experts who then have to look at it. And they have to come up with a plausible explanation for why that sample looks the way that it does. Is it doping or could it be something else? Yeah. So when you take, a, a let's say, a Kenyan athlete who goes to high altitude, who's born, has lived his whole life at high altitude, comes down to sea level to compete, then goes back to altitude, that creates quite a complex case for them to understand. Yeah. And then they, they're still not 100% sure. And the problem is they need to be 100% sure yeah. because there's going to be a court case and that athlete's lawyers are going to throw the book at the IAAF or the WADA, IOC, cycling, whoever it is. Yeah. And unless those scientists can stand there and testify with absolute confidence that we are confident that this is a doper, they can't open a case. Yeah. So again, they are necessarily conservative. And I wish that there was a better way to tighten those limits so yeah. that you could do it. And the way, sorry, the way it works then is it goes to three. And if all three agree, they open a case. If two of the three say dope and the other one says I'm not convinced, nothing happens. Okay. So that I was in Rome and that seems to me to be one potential way to make it more aggressive is that if you have a 2-3, a 2-1 split, send it to a fourth one. Yeah. And if he says I agree, it's now three out of four. Or send yeah. it to a fifth one. And if it goes four out of five, yeah. open the case. Yeah. Just to make it a little bit more aggressive, yeah. you know. But mm. but the legal costs of backing up the passport could mm ultimately be its undoing. And even cost to some extent are what prevents this advancement because the costs can exceed what is being put into something like water. Right. So suddenly he's having to pay millions in costs and, and they can't actually do their job. And because the risk of false positives yeah. is so high. And that's not unique to the passport. That And so I spoke earlier about the major criticisms of water. The one is the political one, the, yeah. the one that, like Richard Pound, the lack of appetite to actually catch cheats because of the conflict of interests. The other one is on the scientific side. And there are some pretty prominent scientists, maybe we can even interview one at some point on this podcast, who are critical of WADA's lack of scientific rigor because of this fear of false positives. And that is, by the way, a lot of people say ban them for life. Or or even even more than that, they say doping should be a criminal offense. 
The problem is that until you have a testing method that is foolproof, you can't ban someone for life when there's a risk of a false positive. Yes. You can't send, can you imagine sending someone to jail because of a false test because your science wasn't robust enough? Yeah. yeah. Now, if you try to do that as WADA, what would happen is the athlete, instead of accepting a two year or a four year ban, would absolutely come at you because I'm not going to jail for doping. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, every single doping positive would be a yeah. gargantuan court case and yeah. water would be destroyed. And once you have a precedent, then you, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that's, yeah. so that's the big thing holding back life bans, holding back criminal charges. Aside from the fact, can you imagine being an innocent athlete who takes a supplement that's tainted and next thing yeah. you're in jail? I mean, no, yeah. it's just it not reasonable. Happen. There are some innocent athletes. It does, athletes, it does happen. So. Yeah. So, so the the false positive issue is a yeah. is an anchor on anti doping, but it's not an easy one to get rid of. Yeah, we've got ten more minutes left in our podcast, so just a couple of quick questions. The, probably the one of the most common questions we get from people is saying, "Why don't we just make drugs legal for everybody?" Yeah, so that is common, and it's argued every time there's a high profile case. <laughs> the, the the first point is, what, you don't give up on something just because you can't solve all of it. Yeah, because you. You don't always see the benefit of it when you're not succeeding 100%, right? So imagine we had that same attitude towards crime, towards yeah. speeding, which is not even necessarily, well, it can be criminal and negligent and harmful. But imagine we said, well, because 10% of cars, between, let's say, let's stick to the research, because 44% of drivers speed, we should just legalize speeding. Well, <laughs> no, yeah. that, that's, not a, that's not a sensible argument because if you... If you did away with the limitation, mm. then who knows what would happen? And that's the problem with doping. If you did away with, let's say anti-doping is ineffective as a way to stop doping, but it is effective as a way to limit doping, it will regulate doping. Yeah. Then you remove regulation, then what happens, you see? So that's, that's the problem. And the, 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 the performance consequence, there's a health consequence because now I can take all the EPO in the world. I can. Yeah. You you create basically a race to the bottom. So in other words, you have to harm yourself to be competitive if everybody's on drugs. Right. So yeah. and then and then the only thing that Which differentiates me and you, you let's say you and I are big rivals at this mm. year's Tour de France. Mm. The thing that differentiates us, aside from training and natural ability, is who's willing to risk more. Yeah. Um, and that's not a. I mean, that's it's not sport. Clearly, that's not a good situation yeah. to be in health-wise sure. or performance-wise. For sure. And it also sends the message to a young athlete. I mean, you're 16. You are showing the first signs of talent in your sport, whatever it is, tennis, cycling, hockey, canoeing, rowing, running, whatever. And you know that by the age of 22, you're going to have to take drugs. Why would you keep going? Yeah. So, in fact, by 16, you probably already are. If it's legal, yeah. you'd be on them by 12. Yeah. Because that's the only way to get noticed and get ahead in a yeah. in a professional sporting world. So, the, the 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 whole fabric that holds sport and health together would unravel if you did away with anti doping. So, mm. I, I I reject the extreme argument. I do think that the water list is unnecessarily long and complicated. I mean, this water code is the document that underpins anti doping. It's 156 pages, which <laughs> is necessary because it explains what that doping is. It identifies all the banned substances and methods, the things we've spoken about. It talks about the how a sample's collected, how it's going to be tested, what happens in a court case, the appeals process. Yeah. But the prohibited list, I mean, is hundreds of substances. I didn't I didn't count them. You can go and count them yeah. if you want. 
and each athlete's responsible for making sure that they're not and that's, ingesting any of those hundreds of things, which well, is that's difficult. Massively thing. onerous, massively yeah. onerous, and difficult because you're an athlete. You're not a biochemist. Yeah. And okay, yeah. you should have doctors. You can't use the Sharapova defense when she did uh, when she got done for meldonium. Remember, they added that drug meldonium to the band list in 2017, I think it was. And they warned all the athletes and she said, I didn't know. I mean, that doesn't work. You should know if you're a multi-million dollar industry like Sharapova is. Yeah. But but for a lot of these athletes, the, the, the mm-hmm. anti-doping, the, the list of substances is unnecessarily wrong and so forth. Long and complicated. Yeah. Now, the, the problem that creates and the reason I would suggest trimming it is that a good deal of resource goes towards chasing these dead-end sample failures, you know? So... If, if I was in charge of water, one of the things I would audit, and I'm, maybe they do this, is I would want to know what percentage of my money and my time and my people are dedicated towards the non-class A drugs. Yeah. So class A drugs would be the ones you asked me about, EPO, growth hormones, steroids, and high-grade stimulants. Yeah, I would, I would divide my list into the, the serious drugs and the less serious ones. And I reckon it's like a classic 80-20 thing, like 80% of their time and energy goes to the the twenty percent of the drugs that needn't be there. So that fig so juice sim- that the that the ancient Greeks take, we wouldn't put that on the band list. Yeah, we like would, the methyl, we would encourage methyl hexanamine. I mm. mean, that I would be highly surprised if that stuff's more potent than caffeine. Yeah. So if you take caffeine off, then take that off. So, so a review I, of their banned I, substances is probably. I, it in, would in be order. nice to see it trimmed. I, I know what the counter argument is. Mm. Uh, the counter argument is that if you don't put them all on there, then they'll just abuse the smaller niche ones, and right. it could. But then maybe you've got to make them threshold drugs, you know, that if you test them at a certain concentration or something to, again, it's complicated. It's easy for us to sit here and solve the issue theoretically. Yeah. It's not so easy to solve outside of that. Yeah. So, And that's the same, by the way, as the therapeutic use exemption, which is where I, I think the medicalization of performance is the biggest issue facing doping now. So, so just, to, just to explain this, so TUEs, therapeutic yeah. use exemption, is what a lot of athletes, and we've seen Chris Froome do that with his asthma medication mm. controversially, yeah. um, and uh, athletes do this when they've got think, conditions like asthma that they need to take asthma so the, medication, therefore get an exemption to use that So the first TUE case was granted in the 60s, I think, a Swedish athlete who was taking testosterone because he had had both testes removed. Yeah. One is a baby and one is a teenager because of cancer. And so he said, I've got no testes, I'm male, and I would like to then take testosterone and be exempt from being caught as a doper. Right. And they said, fine, because you have a medical reason. So a TUE basically is a therapeutic use exemption where the authorities will allow you to use a banned drug because you've shown a medical need for it. Now, in theory, using that banned drug offers you no benefit over and above what you wouldn't have had without yeah. the condition. Where it got complicated is when they started adding in the 70s and 80s, they started adding asthma medication to the banned list. Now you've got all these athletes who are more likely to discover their asthma than a non-guy sitting on the couch watching sport. It's a, who, it's a, sorry to digress, <laughs> but there's a great poster I saw a few weeks ago, um, or not a few weeks ago, probably a year ago, of a, of a, a poster saying 13-year-old cyclist disappointed he doesn't have asthma. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and every time there's like a talent ID thing that someone makes a joke, just look for people with asthma. Yes. Because asthmatics are hugely overrepresented in sport. And, and Which they shouldn't that, be, actually. So that's not true asthmatics overrepresented <laughs> sport. It's people taking asthma meds yes. are overrepresented. And so that people say, well, that's a sign that the system's being abused. And I, th- I think it is being, yeah. but it's probably not by the extent people say, because 
again, if, if you're an endurance athlete and you've got any exercise-induced or non-exercise-induced asthma, you're going to discover it where a non-athlete wouldn't have. Yeah. So it's more likely to be found, but I think it's still exploited. So, so TUEs create a loophole. Yeah. Uh, cortisone, TUEs. Lance Armstrong in his 99 first tour retrospectively got a TUE for cortisone for yes. what he called saddle sores. Subsequently, we know from investigations in cycling that cortisone and corticosteroids, this is another stereotype, by the way, are massively abused in the sport because yeah. they take away pain, they allow the athlete to continue through pain, mm. uh, and they might have performance benefits because they help athletes lose fat yeah. without compromising muscle. So the Independent Reform Commission in Cycling, I think in 2015, described that corticosteroid abuse was widespread in cycling. Yeah. And often they're covered by TUEs. So Michael Ashenden, who's one of the famous anti-doping doctors, has said that, that with the advent of intelligent testing, biopassport, more sensitive tests, you know, that's what happens. They, they'll collect your blood samples in 2012 at the Olympics. They can't find anything. But by 2016, the test has improved. Now you can find the drug that you previously couldn't. So yeah. better testing has squeezed doping down. And in response, dopers, athletes, have become more intelligent and the use of drugs, thyroid hormone, cortisone, TUEs, has become the way around it. Now, is that progress? Yes, in a way, but it hasn't solved the problem. So that's where we sit with respect to the way. And then again, the, the will, the political desire to solve this problem is probably the biggest thing holding back the solution. Ross Tucker, we're going to leave it at that a fantastic discussion around uh, doping in sport. And as Ross said uh, right at the start of this podcast, uh, our take on this very controversial issue, and we won't want to be revisiting this every five minutes because it is kind of gets a bit tiresome after a while, but we hope we've given you some insight into the issues at stake, the drugs involved, and uh, hopefully the, the chance that we actually maybe even uh, beating and uh, overcoming this problem of drugs in sport. Thanks very much, Ross. Ross. Uh, we'll see you on our next podcast, and goodbye for now. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.